Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 33rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is anger, politics, and the health of American democracy. With me is Stephen W. Webster, the author of American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics. The publisher is Cambridge University Press. Stephen is an assistant professor of political science at Indiana University in Bloomington. His research and writings focus on the role of anger in American politics, including the growth of negative partisanship in our country and the ever greater polarization separating Democrats and Republicans. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So let's dive right in. What's the book about in a nutshell? So the book is all about anger in American politics. It, it focuses on where our anger has come from. It focuses on how political elites strategically seek to make us angry. And then perhaps most importantly, it looks at the consequences of our anger uh, for various political outcomes. So things like trust in government, our commitment to various political values that have sort of been the linchpin of our democracy. And then it looks at how our anger shapes the ways in which we vote for candidates up and down the ballot. Okay. So let's, since it's about anger, let's make sure we define our terms here. How would you define anger both psychologically and I guess politically? Yeah. So anger is something that is caused when, when somebody is upset by something, when they feel aggrieved or they feel like there's been some slight in their life. Um, of course, anger can be aroused through many different ways. It can be something that has nothing to do with politics. So a, a fight with a significant other or a, a car wreck or any number of things. Um, political anger is, is something that has to do specifically with government or, or politicians themselves. So it's some sort of uh, slight or aggrievement that one experiences specifically pertaining to politics or political affairs. Okay. And what are the implications for anger? If someone's angry, you know, as a citizen, what might I expect is going to be the, the behavior that results from feeling uh, anger, particularly maybe strong anger? So it, it's broadest level. Anger has the profound ability to shape the ways in which we view our governing institutions. So anger, whether we think about anger as sort of a, a stable disposition or more of an emotional reaction to something, has the ability to lower Americans' trust in the national government. This is problematic because trust in government has been shown to facilitate things like uh, bipartisan legislation, as well as support for social welfare programs. And so this is a really unfortunate consequence of our anger. Beyond this, anger can cause Americans to weaken in their commitment to various democratic values. So in particular, when people are angry, specifically with supporters of the opposing political party, 
they're more likely to say that those who disagree with them politically are less intelligent than they are. And more importantly, they're more likely to say that those who disagree with them politically are a threat to the country's well-being. So our anger has the ability to fuse the political and the personal, and this leads to some unfortunate consequences for our politics. And and among Democrats versus Republicans, you just mentioned threat. You mentioned uh, seeing the other side as less intelligent. Are those uh, reactions or you know implications of anger that are different between a Democrat versus a Republican? So you know, anger can affect political beliefs and political attitudes and political behavior for both Democrats and Republicans. There really aren't a whole lot of differences in terms of anger as an emotion. Um, what is true is that. Democrats who are dispositionally angry, so if we think about anger as a a personality trait, these are people who are just sort of hardwired to be angry. We see that uh, trait-based anger matters more for Democrats than it does for Republicans. And I posit that this is because part of being a Republican is simply distrusting the federal government. That's almost part and parcel of being a Republican in today's political era. Um, For Democrats, they're, they're more willing to trust the government. And so there's more room for anger to operate as this sort of corrosive force in American politics. And in terms of propelling people to the polls, what is the implications of anger? So there's two things. So the first thing is that anger is what we would call an action-oriented emotion. So yep. when people are angry, they tend to want to do something or some set of things to assuage that anger. So the first thing is that Anger gets people involved in the political process, which we generally think of as as being a good thing, right? We have pretty low participation rates in America. And so, you know, more people turning out to the polls is a good thing. The second thing, though, is that anger can, can sort of change who we vote for. So when people are angry, they're more likely to vote for their party's slate of candidates up and down the ballot. So we're talking about votes for the presidency, votes for the Senate, votes for the U.S. House. And what's particularly interesting about this is that this anger can cause us to vote loyally for our party, even when we don't like our own party's candidates. And so what this means is that American politics today is more a story about how our behavior is governed by uh, really sort of anger and negativity rather than bonds of affection. Sure. And I thought that was one of the really important points of the book is that one of the implications of anger is that it reduces self-reflection. And, you know, anger, you know, all emotions are contagious, but certainly anger is, is contagious and gets stoked by various actors and all this, as we'll talk about. So, so you mentioned it being a, an action-oriented emotion. In fact, there's only two approach emotions, really, anger and happiness. Do we have any chance of happiness coming back into this equation, or are we in a, a death spiral of, of anger upon anger at this point? You know, I would love to say that American politics is going to become optimistic and sort of forward-looking. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. I think that that politicians have such a strong incentive to elicit anger among the electorate. Um, And, you know, I I think it's easier to point to things that uh, can make people angry, you know, these perceived wrongdoings. Um, it's, It's easier to sort of elicit those sorts of emotions among one's base than it is to sort of cast a positive, optimistic vision for the future. And so I think for that reason alone, we're likely to see anger continue to dominate American politics. So, so Obama's, you know, hope message, it was, was an anomaly or something we're just not going to see in any future cycles? 
you know what's what's interesting about Barack Obama's "Yes, we can" and 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 you know, change we can believe in, and this message of hope. You know, I I'm not sure how realistic it was. You sure. know, I think people think about Obama and how he was such this paradigm shattering president, and, and of course he was. But we have to remember that he was campaigning against the Great Recession that he argued was brought on by George W. Bush. Right? He always always denigrated George W. Bush, and so for all of these sort of appeals to optimism and hope, Barack Obama oftentimes campaigned on anger. I think it was just sometimes more subtle than we see our current politicians doing. Okay. Yeah, well, you mentioned, um, you know, one of the things that happens with anger is we stereotype. So uh, I wanted to talk more about partisan affiliation and identification here. H- how does anger, which brings on stereotyping, uh, play into that dynamic? Yeah. Well, you know, I think anger can oftentimes cause us to view the world in ways that, that aren't quite accurate. And so if we're angry with the other party, we're more likely to believe stereotypes about that party. So, you know, if I'm a Republican and I'm angry with the Democratic Party, there's a greater likelihood that I'm going to believe that all Democrats, you know, drive electric cars and, you know, sip lattes from Starbucks or, or what have you. Uh, and of course, the opposite is true if you're a Democrat. You're more likely to believe that Republicans are, you know, going to church every day of the week and they're all carrying guns. And so I think anger sort of shuts down our our rational, logical thinking, and it makes us more likely to rely on, you know, really simple cues or heuristics when we're making judgments. And so when we're angry, we tend to think of ourselves as partisans, and that's what causes us to further stereotype the other side. Sure. Well, with anger, we, 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 we're in a rush often. We, we feel aggression. Um, let's talk about a few other emotions here, because you know the book is certainly centered on anger, but you spend a good deal of time, as you should, on the issue of trust. What's the relationship, you know, I guess I'll start psychologically, between anger and trust? How, how do those two work in tandem or really against each other? Yeah, so I think part of this deals with the fact that anger is an emotion with a negative valence. And the valence of an emotion goes a long way in shaping how we view the world around us, right? So, you know, the the flip side of this is that if I'm happy and then somebody asks me about the national government, I'm much more likely to offer an optimistic evaluation precisely because I'm in this this happy state. Well, if that's true, the the opposite holds that, that if I'm angry, I'm going to be sort of pessimistic in my evaluations and judgments of the world. And so it's this, this sort of negative valence that is contained within the emotion of anger that's spilling over to our evaluations of government, particularly the extent to which we trust the national government. And so this is why I, I oftentimes refer to anger as a corrosive emotion for American politics. Okay. And, and trust, you know, is the opposite of contempt. And most psychologists would, would argue that contempt is a, kind of a cross-breed between anger and disgust. Uh, does disgust play any, any role in how you're, you're viewing American politics? I know you've done some unique survey work, uh, investigations of all this. H- has disgust popped up and how does it play uh, with, with anger? Do they reinforce? It's just a completely different strain that's going on. How, how does that play out? It's a great question. So, so as you well know, they're, you know, anger and disgust are in this sort of similar emotional family. Uh, and so a lot of times when you elicit anger among Americans, you will get some residual amounts of disgust. And so oftentimes anger causes disgust, but you know, there's sort of a, a, a which came first here or a chicken and the egg problem, if you will, because oftentimes disgust can lead to anger. And so all that to say, anger and disgust in American politics are certainly linked with each other. Um, 
in, in my surveys, the main way that I elicit anger is I simply ask people to tell me about a time that they were angry about politics. And the idea here is that when people tell me this story, they're sort of reliving or re-experiencing this anger-inducing event. And so they kind of get worked up, right? Their, their heart rate might increase. They might speak with a quicker cadence. And so when I, when I listen to what people say or I read what they've written to me, a lot of times you see uh, words that are indicative of disgust, right? It's this idea that, you know, people who disagree with you are sort of less than and they're, they're out to harm the country. And there's frustration with the policies that, that the other party supports and the sorts of things that define the sort of cultural ways that, that Democrats and Republicans, you know, behave. And so I, I think that anger and disgust are, are almost intertwined in contemporary American politics. And it, it doesn't take too much of a look through the, the history books to realize that that's, that's quite problematic. Yeah, no, I, I think of disgust as, you know, poisonous. So if I see the other side as something that, you know, I don't want to, that I think smells bad, tastes bad. I mean, I just have a revulsion to it and I back off. It certainly seems to me like it, it closes down the avenues for any, you know, bipartisan understandings and agreements. What about weak uh, sadness, rather? Because you, you mentioned negative valence. And so there's at least one other motion or two we have to get around to here, which is, uh, and I don't want to get too far astray from anger, but certainly it seems we need to bring in anxiety, uh, i.e. fear, and just possibly sadness. Do those play any role, or does anger just effectively override at least one of those two emotions? I mean, what, what's, how does anger you know, play to these other feelings? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So in, in my book, I, I do examine the role of anxiety. And even when we factor anxiety into our models of, of how Americans view the political world, we still see that anger is exerting a, a very large effect on our political behavior. I will note that that while anger and anxiety are both, you know, negatively balanced emotions, the behavioral implications of these emotions, at least within the realm of politics, uh, is is quite different. So, as I've mentioned before, when people are angry, they sort of shut down their their logical or their rational thinking. They rely on on heuristics and judgments when they evaluate the world around them. Anxiety tends to have the opposite effect in in politics. When people are anxious, they seek out information that can sort of alleviate, if not ameliorate, their anxiety. And so there's been some great work done by, by some of my colleagues in political science uh, precisely on the role of anxiety. Um, anxiety tends to cause people to uh, support politicians who offer these sorts of anti-democratic positions. Uh, and of course, this is you know not what we would want, but, but the key here is that when people are anxious, they're not really concerned about you know, is this a good democratic position? They're concerned about, can I get shelter from the material world and from the things that are threatening to me? And so it's the, the different behavioral implications that, that really separate anger from anxiety in terms of political behavior. Okay. And, and sadness, because it seems to me that sadness at least potentially offers opportunities for compassion, for empathy. Um, and so therefore, it seems that it's an, kind of the antithesis politically to, to anger. Uh, it, have you found that to be true or am, I'm off base and there's something else going on with anger and sadness and how they interplay? So I have not done any work on sadness myself, but I, I think the, the theory you just outlined is, is entirely plausible. Um, I, I don't think it's a contentious thing to say that we could use more empathy and compassion in our politics. Uh, so, so I hope you're right, Dan, with, with that theory there. <laughs> 
Um, I want to go back to happiness for just a moment. I, I uh, am from Minnesota, so I've often gone down and, and watched the Iowa uh, State Fair and the speakers, you know, uh, speaking at the State Fair or other things going on in Iowa. So um, one person you mentioned in the book and that I've seen in person is Newt Gingrich. Yeah. And Newt Gingrich certainly is angry. Certainly Newt Gingrich has brought what he what you describe as, you know, a desire for more nastiness from the Republican side to me, what he saw as that happening from the Democratic side. But I have to say, in person, what strikes me about Newt Gingrich is he's not exactly Hubert Humphrey, the happy warrior, but he's <laughs> almost happy being angry. I, I watched him speak, and I, I confess I thought of the Penguin from Batman, just <laughs> almost like cackling with the desire to be mischievous yeah. and to uh, make things go wrong for, a quote-unquote, the good guys or the other side in the, in the battle. So does does happiness maybe in some ways that it plays into contempt? Uh, I mean, it seems to me that happiness does have some role here beyond uh, Barack Obama's, you know, hope message. Um, what, yeah, what, what, I, what say I, what say you? <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that's right, and I, I think Gingrich is you know the the prime example that that you really can't ignore when you're talking about anger in American politics. Um, in some ways, he's sort of the architect of our anger in politics. I mean, he was, you know, writing the contract with America and, you know, giving, you know, tapes to all these Republican congressional candidates saying, here's how you should talk about Democrats. And it was a very personal sort of threatening, um, vitriolic way of talking about those who hold a different political opinion than yourself. And so I think Gingrich, in a lot of ways, is is the sort of uh, genesis of of anger, at least in the the modern era of American politics. I think your point about Gingrich being almost happy about being angry is quite interesting. And I think there's a real aspect of truth to that. You know, in, in a lot of ways, anger is addicting. And, and while people will say they're sick of the anger in American politics and the vitriol, I don't know if I entirely believe that. And so I think the the closest analog I can think of is negative campaign advertisements. And yep. so Tom Daschle has this, this famous or perhaps infamous quote uh, where he said that negative campaign ads are the crack cocaine of American politics. And his point was, is that people like these things, right? That, like they want more of these negative ads, even when they say they don't. And so I think anger is oftentimes the same way. Sort of one final point on this is that uh, I think this kind of segues into this idea of Schadenfreude, right? Do I do I get joy in the suffering of others in terms of politics? And this is where some of my my new work is going, looking at you know, okay, we're angry, we don't like the other side. What are some of the implications of this that that we can really unpack? And one of the things I found is that people do take joy, or to use your your words here, they are happy when bad things happen to those that they disagree with. I think you're bringing up a, a term that I really like from the book, um, the unfortunate specter of what you called partisan taunting. Can you unpack that for listeners? Yeah, so partisan taunting is this concept in political science that suggests that one of the things that, that politicians do is they just make fun of the other party. They say nasty things about them. This really solidifies the politician among their base. It signals their own in-group membership. It can, of course, elicit anger among the base. It can get people to turn out. And so while we often think of politicians as doing things like, you know, reading bills, passing legislation, doing sort of oversight and investigatory work, this argument says that, yes, politicians do those things. But increasingly, what politicians do 
is say nasty things about the other side. And that's, that's what political scientists call partisan taunting. So, so I, I can't resist because, you know, I think that specter is, is very much true. And, of course, it extends to, as you mentioned in your book, uh, cable news, uh, just pitting left versus right, MSNBC versus Fox. Uh, have you gone through and actually uh, been able to measure or there's other studies that are looking at uh, different hosts and different programs or even daytime versus evening fare on those two cable channels? I'd be really curious to know which people uh, maybe consistently stoke anger uh, more vehemently, more, more you know, uh, totally from their show versus blending in other emotions. Uh, any results, insights, or just from your own watchings uh, of both channels? I presume you've done that as part of your work as a political science. Scientist. Yeah. So, so in my book, I do look at how the media tries to elicit anger among uh, their their watchers. And you have to remember that the media has their own incentives and their strong incentives to elicit anger. Because when you're angry about something, you're going to to really fixate on it. And so the media wants you to continue watching their shows. And so anger sort of fixes your eyes on on their channels. Um, I think you're you're quite astute to note that there's probably some differences in terms of which sort of hosts elicit the most anger. Uh, and what I found is that it's it's these primetime hosts that are the most sort of uh, likely to appeal to anger, right? So the Sean Hannity's of the world, uh, the, the, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC, for example, um, they're, they're much more anger inducing than the sort of daytime, more fact news driven programming. Um, you know, this is problematic because most people who watch Fox News and MSNBC tend to tune in in the primetime hour, and that's exactly where they're getting the most vitriolic language. Yeah, no, I, I, I have certainly noted, particularly on Fox, the difference between daytime and at least some of the evening hosts. It's also the guests that they have on. I mean, I, I can almost imagine it's a chess game where they say, okay, well, we're going to have three guests on the next segment, and one's our guaranteed angry man, and then oh, we yeah. have someone who's a little more moderate. But I just I get fascinated by the, the blends, but it, it seems to me that they're always careful to keep stoking the fires, uh, especially during primetime. Well, yeah, we, we know that, for instance, you know, the, the media has a strong incentive to book the most ideologically extreme members of Congress as their guests. Yep. Yep. Uh, this is because these people are, are the most angry. They're the most unabashedly partisan. And so it's, it's a deliberate thing that the media is doing. This is not some accident that, you know, the, the primetime hosts seem to be angry. They're doing this by design. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I suddenly get an image of a circus going on, uh, a very unfortunate <laughs> circus in this case. I think that's let's, right. Let's, yeah, let's, let's move to a couple other things. Um, I mean, obviously, this is going to have implications. If you have more anger and you have less trust in government and you have this separation, uh, I'm, I'm interested in the policy implications of this. We have a new administration coming in. Uh, all sorts of policy choices have to be made. Uh, the hopes for any kind of you know bipartisan agreements seem you know rather slim, but let let's start foreign and then go domestic. O on a foreign front, I mean, we've had the Trump administration. We're about to have the Biden administration. From your research, is there any sense of what are the implications for American democracy as it gets projected internationally, given the role of anger? So you know, I I think to the extent we expect things to change under Joe Biden. I think we're more likely to see those changes in foreign affairs. Um, you know, 
presidents tend to have more constitutional leeway to take action unilaterally with foreign affairs as opposed to domestic affairs. I think the biggest thing is that Joe Biden is more likely to behave like past American presidents. Uh, And so, you know, I think that sort of consistency and predictability is going to go a long way in terms of foreign affairs. Um, And so that's where I think we're likely to see changes. Unfortunately, you know, if, if, if we're expecting changes domestically, I think we're about to be let down. Um, Joe Biden has, of course, campaigned on restoring the soul of America, and he's, he's talked about how he thinks Republicans are going to work with him. Um, this is quite interesting to me, because if you remember, Barack Obama, when he was running for re-election in 2012, said almost the exact same thing. He said, you know, if I get re-elected, I think, quote, the fever will break and Republicans will start working with me. Well, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the fever did not break. And in fact, the fever arguably got worse. Uh, And so I don't think anything about Joe Biden's election is going to sort of turn the dial on our anger down a few notches. I think, if anything, this is a a systemic problem. And so it's going to take institutional fixes to sort of give a release valve for our anger. And so I think the implication of this is that we're going to continue to see a, a hollowing out of our legislative effectiveness. I don't think much will get done at the congressional level over the next four years. Yeah, I, I, I can't say I disagree with you. Um, maybe just to stay with my question and getting really specific, is there a chance that this rising temperature, this this anger could make America or at least certain factions in America push harder for uh, aggressive behavior, whether it's actually you know in terms of war, in terms of you know immigration policies to keep outsiders still on the outside. Uh, Domestically, is there a chance that this means people are uh, more aggressive about wanting to shred the, the, uh, you know, social security net and so forth? Are there anything in your research? I know you're, you know, continuing to write and research and studies matters. You know, where, where is this going to take us in terms of how government's role may devolve or change over the years? These are tough questions. I'm asking you to kind of speculate a bit, but I'm I'm wondering if you've begun to investigate or tease out these possible implications. So some of this is speculation, but I think it's it's informed speculation based off of of the work of others in political science. And so um, one of your your points was about the the social uh, welfare state and our our sort of social safety net that we have in the United States. Um, you know, there was this lot of talk during the the sort of Tea Party wave about how they wanted to, you know, get rid of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and this was all government overreach. And the truth of the matter is that Tea Party supporters weren't really opposed to the social welfare state. They were opposed to the social welfare state for certain people, right? They they tended to support the social welfare state when it benefited sort of white native-born Americans, uh, and they were more skeptical of these programs benefiting. Uh, people who didn't look like them. This is important because the parties have increasingly sorted along uh, racial uh, and sort of demographic lines. And so when it's increasingly hard to disentangle partisanship from our sort of visible characteristics, politics can become quite nasty. And so I do think that if this anger continues, there could be some some real efforts, whether at the national level or at the various uh, state legislative levels, um, to, to pass policies that disproportionately harm certain segments of our population. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite as sure about whether this is going to make us more uh, likely to go to war. I'm, I'm far from a scholar of, of international relations, but I do think that there are some potentially damaging um, policy implications uh, due to our anger. 
Well, it seems to me, for instance, you know, the, the, the Paris Accords and so forth, these are things where one's trying to cooperate. And if one is aggressive and angry and belligerent, it does seem to me that it could uh, increase the likelihood of, you know, going one's own way or failing to, you know, try to reach consensus on matters. That's probably where my thinking was going. Um, before we run out of time, I have to go one other place because you're talking about the, you know, the uh, potential destruction or, or dangers that anger poses for democratic norms and values. And you couldn't have known this when you wrote the book, but of course you, you mentioned the specter of people sometimes not accepting election results. And, and that's where we sit right now. And I wondered what you might want to say on this and what the implications could be, because we're seeing on the internet, you know, angry words. We're seeing angry expressions on national TV of people protesting uh, things that are going on regarding the the elections, and they're being supposedly rigged. Uh, we have skin color differences that sometimes stand out. Uh, there's all sorts of signals out there in the environment. Uh, what do you think is the the impact of of Trump uh, Trump's anger about you know supposedly having won this election and yet losing the election? Yeah, this is, uh, you know, for me, the most pressing question in American politics right now is, is you know, what is the, the end result of this going to be? And I think if you just look at the research in this area, you can, you know, draw some pretty um, unfortunate or, or pessimistic conclusions quite quickly. Um, one of the, the hallmarks of American politics is this idea of loser's consent. So the losers have an election, yep. except the election outcome is legitimate and they, they sort of live to fight another day. And so the fact that that Donald Trump is openly and repeatedly questioning the validity of this election is quite harmful to the health of our democracy. The fact that he's layering in this aspect of anger into this uh, is more problematic because this just sort of, you know, increases the the bonds between Trump and his supporters. And it makes it more likely that they're going to rely on him for their information about whether this election was legitimate rather than the sort of nonpartisan experts uh, who are saying, listen, we haven't found any evidence of, of systematic fraud. And so I, I think this is quite worrisome. Um, I, I think the sort of upshot here is that these lawsuits are not likely to go anywhere. Um, Joe Biden will be in the White House in January. But the problem is, is that these views are going to remain. And so I think this is going to hamper Joe Biden's ability to get things done while he's in office. And I think it's going to shape the future of the Republican Party for some time. And so this is something that, you know, I think people who who care about American politics and who participate in the political process really need to keep an eye on. Yeah, I, I've tried to read the emotions of Mitch McConnell, who makes me think more of an owl than of the penguin from Batman. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if, if uh, Trump is able to become kind of the shadow government, uh, his model is very different and is much angrier than Mitch McConnell's. Uh, and it seems to me that he may not be uh, able to uh, become an autocratic leader of America, but he's become an autocrat in charge of the Republican Party to a, a striking extent over these last four or five years. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens. We're, we are about done with the, the uh, half hour, but I want to thank you so much for, for being on the show, Stephen. Uh, this has been Stephen W. Foster, his book, The American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics. This has been episode number 33, Anger, Politics, and the Health of American Democracy. You can find more information about this episode by going to my latest blog posting at httpsemotionswizard.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and or a review on iTunes. To check out other episodes, you can go to my company's website 
at www.sensorylogic.com. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Given today's topic, I have filched from Stephen's book a quote where he cites Eleanor Roosevelt, our former first lady, saying, anger is one letter short of danger. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.